Well, it's good to be with you in person. Uh, I've been with you on a box or whatever you've been looking on for a long time, and it's been a it's been a real trip experiencing what these last months have been like. But I'm glad that I can close out today and be with you and see your faces. Uh, Carol and I both appreciate so much the time that we've been able to share with you the the home in the in the middle of it all that we've been able to to grow with you. Thank you for letting us into your lives. Uh, for sharing your lives, uh, for being a, a wonderful audience of people to listen and to speak to. Uh, it's, uh, it's a rare treat to be able to speak to a group like this, so thanks. Thanks for all you've done. We come, we come to the end of a very short series, and I've, uh, I've chosen this topic this morning because I think in a lot of ways it resonates with, with where we might be. Somebody's hurt you perhaps more than once, and the pain has created a, a separation, a distance between you that, quite frankly, seems impossible to be able to bridge, or so it seems, or at least so it, so it feels. The relationship has been broken, or perhaps in some cases it's been more seriously violated in, in some way, and, and it just can't be the same again. You honestly are not sure that you even want it to be good again. And whatever there used to be between you and, and whoever or whatever that was is no more. And the hurt is too great and the damage has been done. And after all, it's, it's not your problem, right? It's, it's his or it's hers. That, that's always the case. It's, 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 it's never us. And you're not the one who should be called upon to, to fix the problem. You didn't cause the pain. It's not your responsibility to somehow make it go away. Or maybe it's not personal. Maybe it's just this mess that we're in right now uh, in our culture, in, in our country. I mean, things are, things are just boiling everywhere. There's this hug, ugly tension of words, and we find ourselves thinking, how many centuries do we have to go before we can find some healing? It, maybe you might think at times that it's broken and it can't be fixed. Time hasn't done that, or at least so it seems, the message I, I share with you this morning uh, in this one another series that we've looked at is to forgive one another. Now, it's expressed a multitude of times, at least several times in the New Testament. The one we've chosen to talk to you about this morning is found in the book of Colossians chapter 3. It's nestled in the midst of some verses, and it's always helpful to have context. So I'm going to start in verse 11 and go down through verse uh, 15. Paul says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, and I think we could reasonably also say black or white. Christ is all that matters, and he lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must also forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves in love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. Paul says, God called us to be 
holy people and to display that through the way that we clothe ourselves and all these spiritual attributes. So when the world looks at us, there's a sense of, wow, they're different. That, that somehow forgiveness, which is so contrary to the culture, is just a part of how they live and act. In this particular text, actually you find forgiveness coming before love. Now we, we talked last Last week, they'll know we're Christians by our love, but they'll even more radically see that when it's lived out in the way that we forgive. But we, we balk at forgiveness, don't we? There's just something about it. Uh, you say it's not hard for you, well, it's hard for me. Uh, I, I struggle sometimes with trying to sort that out. Sometimes uh, I'm a resistant audience even to my own sermons. <laughs> you know, you ever done that? You just, you listen to that, you think, whoa, that... That says something that's real easy to say, but, you know, it's very much different to do because when you're talking about forgiveness, forgiveness is hard work. We each have our own personal stories. We have our own collective hurts or sufferings or broken relationships or pain. And the last thing that we want to hear is that it's our responsibility to do something about healing or that it's dependent in any way on our personal initiative. It should be their burden not mine. When someone hurts us, the first impulse is often to get even, or at least to find justice. At the very minimum, we want the person to admit that they have done something to us, whether they apologize or not, so they, they own some of the credit for the mess that we're in. I heard about a man who went to visit his dying business partner, and when he got there, partner said to the guy I was visiting that he needed to share something. We need to make a confession. And he said, I, I need to confess that I robbed our company of about a half a million dollars. I sold a lot of our top secret formulas to our competitors. And, and I am the one who supplied your ex-wife most of the information that she needed to be able to get uh, the generous divorce settlement she got and to take most of your money. And the guy who was, the healthy guy who was making the visit said, well, that's okay. I'm the one who poisoned you. <laughs> if you. If you can't make it right, you get even one way or the other. That's kind of how it goes. And we, we have this poisonous relationship a lot of times, even within the church in our relationships, and definitely within the culture in our relationships, and into this bubbling cauldron of our feelings and damaged relationships comes this hard and frequently unwelcome word from God. Forgive. Forgive. But why should I have to forgive? And I don't want to forgive. And yet God keeps coming back again and again saying, forgive one another. Corey Ten Boom, in her writings, tells some powerful stories about her life. She was a, she was a Christian who was uh, put in a German concentration camp because she hid Jews during the Second World War. But when she finally got out after a terrible, humiliating, horrid experience, she said that she would never go back to Germany again. But sometime later, she was invited to go and speak. And she was torn about what to do, but finally felt that it was what God wanted to do, and she was speaking in a church in Munich, and she looked out in the audience, 
and there she saw him. An SS guard who had uh, stood by the shower room door in the processing center in Ravensbrook, where she was kept. He had been among those mocking and sneering. He was one of the hateful watchers. Now, she assumed that he probably did not recognize her, but she could never forget him. You ever had that happen to you? You know, somebody's really hurt you, and they walk by, and it's like they're oblivious to what's, to what's going on. So she finishes, she finishes her speech, and this guy, this guy comes up to her and says, you know, isn't, isn't it great that God has washed all of our sins away? And then he extended his hand to shake her hand. And she said she did not want to shake his hand. How could she forgive the likes of somebody that had so cruelly and callously abused her? But then she felt the urging of God to forgive, and the arm that had been frozen to her side finally made its way up, and she grabbed his hand, and they clasped, and at least it was the start of forgiveness. Now, that, that seems powerful, but Tim Boone tells some more about the challenge that, that even got a little more difficult for her. She writes about a later moment. She was about 70 years old when this happened. She had some Christian friends that she was really close to, and they did something significant that hurt her deeply. And she, in processing that, said, she wrote, You would have thought after having been able to forgive the guards at Ravensbrook, that forgiving Christian friends would be child's play. But it wasn't. For weeks, she confesses that she found herself seething inside over what her friends had done to her. And it was only after a significant passage of time and with great difficulty that she ever got to the point that she could sort of forgive them when... when a peace with that finally came. William Blake once said, it's easier to forgive an enemy than a friend. You expect enemies to do you in, right? I mean, you, you know they're going to attack you. But when it's a friend, and if they make a habit of it again and again and seem oblivious to it, well, that's, that's over the top, or at least it was for Corey Timboom. The apostle Peter one time asked Jesus, he was always wondering about things, he says, Lord, how many times... How many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Now notice that he's using the word brothers and sisters, so he's talking about family life. He's talking about how we get along with each other inside. We are the holy ones that Paul is talking about over in Colossians. So Peter says, forgive them up to seven times? To which Jesus replies, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Now it doesn't say... But I can imagine when Peter says seven, he's thinking, that's generous. That's a big number. It's a perfect number in our culture. He's going to be so proud of me that I'm that generous with my forgiveness. But this 77 stuff, it is shockingly generous. Nobody could forgive somebody that many times. Once, twice, three, but 77 for the same old thing? If I were able to read your minds this morning, I am sure that there are things that are going through your heart right now that have happened with people that you thought loved you. Family. People that you spend your life with. Not strangers. Now there's probably enough coming from strangers, but community. Why, 
why is that world broken? I'm going to suggest to you that forgiveness always starts within the family and then it spills out into the world. That it starts in what may be the harder place of the family and then it spills out into the world. Some would argue, actually, that forgiveness is even one of the most powerful necessities of love. Martin Luther King, Jr., in his church, Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, on Christmas of 1957, spoke about forgiveness, about how we need to develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. And here are some of his words. He said, He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. It is impossible to begin the act of loving one's enemies without the prior acceptance of the necessity over and over again of forgiving those who inflict evil and injury upon us. He continued, It's also necessary to realize that the forgiving act, here comes the hard part, must always be initiated by the person who has been wronged, the victim of some great hurt, the recipient of some torturous injustice, the absorber of some terrible act of oppression. The wrongdoer, he says, may request forgiveness. He may come to himself and, like the prodigal son, move up the dusty road, his heart palpitating with the desire for forgiveness. But only the injured neighbor, the loving father back home, can really pour out the warm waters of forgiveness. The one who's been offended is the one who has to be the forgiver. That's what makes love, and especially uh, uh, forgiveness, so radical a social concept. Forgiveness is not earned. In fact, it may be given before or even without being sought. Well, that's not fair. That, that's not fair. Whoever said that forgiveness was fair? It's really... It's really in the kingdom relationship all about grace. There's a verse that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, some verses about the forgiveness that God demonstrated for us. That was not fair, at least for him. We were the ones who had wronged him, and he responds to us in forgiveness. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 5, verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, He says, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might possibly be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. In an undeserving place, he extends his forgiveness to us. When Jesus said, Father, forgive them from the cross, When he stretched out his arms and said that to us, it certainly was not something that we earned. There is nothing more radically counterculture in a relationship to transform it by love. Let me let let you hear something I think is important. So much of our lives is transactional in its character. Now, what, what do I mean by transactional? It means... I'll do something for you if you'll do something for me. It's always a, you know, it's kind of a back and forth relationship that we've got there. Our relationship will always be conditioned upon our mutual goodwill. 
It's kind of a folksy way of saying, if you scratch my back, and only if you scratch my back, will I scratch yours. It's that selfish, conditional kind of love or forgiveness. The human inclination, when somebody has been on the giving, the bad giving end of this transactional relationship, is they want, we want justice, we want retribution, sometimes we just like to take them out. You ever been there? That's, that's the feeling. Well, let me, let me flip it. True forgiveness is non-transactional. It's not about doing something for you because you have done something for me, whether it is good or bad. I don't decide how to relate to you based on how you treat me or even whether you are good to me or not. Now, I love the way the message captures this culturally contrarian spirit that Jesus represented in part of his Sermon on the Mount over in Matthew 5. The section is captioned, Love your enemies. <laughs> That's a stretch for worldly standards. And here's what Jesus has to say. Here's another old saying that deserves a second opinion. He says, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Is that going to get us anywhere? Here's what I propose. Don't hit back at all. If someone strikes you, stand there and take it. If someone drags you into court and sues you for the shirt off your back, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. And if someone takes unfair advantage of you, use the occasion to practice the servant life. No more tit for tat. No more transactional stuff. Live generously. He goes on, you're familiar with that old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy? I'm challenging that, he says. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best of you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the energies of prayer. For then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. And this is what God wants. That's what he, what he does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless, the good, the bad, the nice, or the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, do you expect a bonus? Anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, he, he concludes, what I am saying is grow up. Grow up. your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. Gandhi one time observed that if we practice the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, on and on, he said, soon the whole world's going to be blind and toothless. That's, a, that's an interesting picture, isn't it? Dale Carnegie made a visit to Yellowstone National Park one time where he saw this grizzly bear. And this huge animal was out in the middle of this clearing, and he was eating some kind of leftover camper food. And for several minutes... No animal got even close to him. But after a few minutes, he noticed that a skunk wandered out into the area where all the food was. And the skunk took a position right near the grizzly bear. And the grizzly bear didn't do a thing. And Carnegie said, I think this is what happened. The grizzly bear knew about the high cost 
of getting even. <laughs> we spend our lives poking bears and making allowances for, for skunks. That tends to be the challenge of kingdom living, isn't it? We have to understand that getting even sometimes has a high cost. The philosophy of this world is you hurt me and I'll hurt you. You give me a hard time and I'll kick you into kingdom come, but not to a kingdom where you want to go. It's all about my rights. It's all about me being right. It's not about you. It's, it's about what I want in my life, especially if you hurt me, if you offend me, if you sin against me. Paul is saying in Colossians, and Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, we must not adopt this common cultural disposition. Why? Because he says in verse 12 of Colossians 3, sometimes translated, we are peculiar people. Don't you like that? <laughs> you like people say, hey, you are peculiar. But what we're talking about here is that we're, we're different. We're, we're set apart. In other words, holy. Our, our, our character and our life goes against the grain of the culture. It just should. We even dress in a different way spiritually. We, we display the clothes of tender-hearted mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. We also make allowances for each other's faults as well as our own. And we forgive anyone who offends us because we have been forgiven of our offenses. You might say that forgiven people are forgiving people. And we clothe ourselves with love. We live in peace and harmony in the church, but also in the world. You see, forgiveness interrupts this vicious, deadly cycle of retribution. Philip Yancey, in his wonderful book, What's So Amazing About Grace, says that there is a major flaw in the law of, re of revenge. It never settles the score. He says forgiveness may be unfair, and it is by definition, but at least it provides a way to halt, halt the juggernaut of retribution. Too much of life is spent like two brute boxers, trading blow for blow. You hit me, I hit you. You hit me hard, I hit you harder. What happens in that kind of situation if the believer, the peculiar person, says, no more? What if you turn the other cheek? What if we interrupt this get-even policy that is so much a part of our culture? The way Jesus forgave us was by dying on a cross that we deserved, but that he took for us. There's something about forgiveness that interrupts this whole cycle of hate and introduces the transforming power of love. If I can take you back to Martin Luther King's Christmas sermon, he said, why should we love our enemies? Now remember, he, he's talking to an audience that's, that's oppressed and tormented. Why should we love our enemies? Returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars than this off-quoted line. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. Hate multiplies hate. Violence multiplies violence. And toughness multiplies, multiplies 
toughness in a descending spiral of destruction. We could say that forgiveness is an unnatural act that is divinely inspired. Divi uh, forgiveness shocks our culture. Unconditional love is not something that we're used to. I think part of the genius of the civil rights movement was this, was this interest in not trying to burn down the culture, but in some way to transform things out of love. Now, now it's important to understand what forgiveness is not. That's really not the whole purpose of what I want to say, but I need to say something about that. Forgiveness is not about ignoring the past, but it's about redeeming the past. I want to take you back to Dexter Avenue Baptist again for a little bit more after that part about pouring the waters of forgiveness. King says, forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means rather that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to our relationship. It doesn't change the past, but it changes how we see the past. He goes on and says, forgiveness is the catalyst creating the atmosphere necessary for a fresh start and a new beginning. It is the lifting of a burden or the counseling of a, canceling of a debt. The words, I will forgive you, but I'll never forget what you've done, never explain the real nature of forgiveness. Certainly, one can never forget, if that means erasing it totally in the mind. But when we forgive, we forget in the sense that the evil deed is no longer a mental block impeding a new relationship. Well, let me take you back to Corey Timboom. She's still, she's still struggling there. She, uh, she tells in, in one of her other books that that deal of forgiving her friends for what they had done to her and how they had wounded her, these people that were close to her. I told you about the process, and she talks about all the weeks of seething and asking God to work a miracle, and she said he did. But then, then, then one night, she, she sits up in her bed, and all she's doing is rehearsing all of this stuff all over again. You ever had that happen to you? You know, you you thought it was done, and then boom, there it is, right back in your head again. And so she comes back to God, and she says, please, let me let go of this. Let me forgive. And she, she finally goes to sleep, and she does. But the next night, it's like back again. It's like boom, she's up in her bed going through all of that over and over and over again in frustration. What to do, what to do, what to do, what to do. And finally, she would come to that. Sometimes you have to forgive and re-forgive and re-forgive and re-forgive and re-forgive. Now, that was when she was, like in her 70s, when she's in her 80s, she has this friend that comes from America to visit her in Holland, and they're talking about life and everything, and somewhere the conversation goes back to these friends, these close friends who had hurt her. And Corey Timboom replies, oh, it's nothing now, and a little smugly she says, it's all forgiven. By you, yes, her friend says, but what about them? Well, she said, they say there is nothing to forgive. She's fuming. They deny that it ever happened, but I can prove them wrong. I have it in black and white. I have saved their letters, she says, and I can show you where. And her, <laughs> her visitor interrupts her and says, have you been the one who's talking about that our sins are at the bottom of the deepest sea? Yet are the sins of your friends not etched in black and white. She had a whole drawer full of letters. And in that astonishing moment, Tin Boom says she lost her voice. She said she couldn't go to sleep that night. 
she went to her desk and she pulled out all of those aging, now curled up letters that were evidence of how she had been wronged. And one by one, she put them into that little coal-burning grate. And it was only after the last one was burnt that her heart began to feel right again. You see, the problem with forgiveness is that we keep, we keep score. We, we keep a record. Paul, when he was describing wrong, uh, love in that beautiful 1 Corinthians 13 passage, <coughs> says love does not keep a list. It has the sense of an accounting ledger, a desk drawer where we store all the stuff we have on those people. Some translate it, love does not hold a grudge. Another says, doesn't keep the score. It doesn't run a tab. Well, there's one more thing, one more thing that you've done to me. I like the way Lewis Smedes in his book, The Art of Forgiveness, says, forgiving does not erase the bitter past. A healed memory is not a deleted memory. Instead, forgiving what we cannot forget creates a new way to remember. We change the memory of our past into a hope for our future. There is no delete key, but there is, for the believer, a recreate key. We don't pretend the past did not exist, but we remember it in a different way. Now, now most of what we've been talking about so far is about what we have to do to this other person, but there is, there is something about forgiveness that affects us. We are on the receiving end of some stuff, too. Smeeds goes on to write, he says, I used to think of forgiving as mercy's way to do something good to someone who had done something bad to us. Then I discovered that the first and sometimes the only person who benefits from forgiving is the person who does the forgiving. And then he adds, when we forgive, we set a prisoner free and discover that the prisoner we set free is us. Someone has said grudge holders are grave diggers and the only grave they dig is their own. Forgiveness is really about me letting go and being able to live my life. Unfortunately, for centuries, for centuries in the U.S. and around the world, we have dealt with this struggle, this torturous struggle of racial tension. You, you would think that all that's happened from the heart of the civil rights movement and way before and on into these present kind of crazy moments that we would get some of it better, but it's still heated and it's still ugly and it's still tough and those hard conversations honestly have to be shared. We can't pretend that that's not there, but I'm convinced that what we have is a sin problem far more than a skin problem. It's not about so much differences of how we look or how we've been born in that way, but it, it's, it's that our hearts are not right. It's not going to happen by shutting the door on memories to an ugly past, and I think those wrongs powerfully need to be acknowledged, but the only way we come to find a positive fast path forward is going to be through a spiritual solution. We're going to have to do the hard work of forgiveness. The Colossian text struck me in a way. You ever read, you read the Bible in the light of a different day? I read the first part of this and I thought, whoa, whoa, whoa. Before he gets to the forgive and the love part, he says in verse 11, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. 
circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. It does not matter what skin or orientation uh, from, from your past experience uh, culturally may be. It really, he says, is that Christ is all that matters and he lives in us. And then in verse 15, he adds, And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts, for as members of one body you are called to live in peace. Now, forgiveness is not the conclusion of it all, but it certainly is the good beginning. It is the foundation upon which all of the ruptured relationships that we have in life start to heal. Grace and forgiveness interrupts the ugly path towards destruction that we within the church and all of us in our culture seem to be bent on, and it gives birth to hope. I talked about John Perkins last week, civil rights leader. I quoted from, uh, quoted from him in the message. He was born as a, a sharecropper's son in Mississippi during the, the heat, the heart of the civil rights era. He lost his brother to racial violence, and later he almost ended up losing his own life. He was beaten mercilessly by, by some racial southern cops, and he had every right to fester with bitter prejudice and hate for all that he'd endured. But something happened that changed the trajectory of his life. His deep hurt was surprised by love, and his heart and his body began to heal. Perkins says that forgiveness is, in his word, the linchpin of racial, racial reconciliation. He points to the spiritual nature of the struggle. He says, and writes in one of his most recent books, we've been looking in all the wrong places for help in fighting the battle for reconciliation. We've sought help from social service agencies and government programs, but this is something that requires divine power. He doesn't dismiss the importance of these programs to, so, to address social ills, but he just says we need something more beyond that. We need supernatural aid. He writes, the enemy has staked out his claim on keeping us from from trusting one another, which is why prayer is the essential weapon of our warfare. In the end, the struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's a, there's a moving short documentary story of some of Perkins' life that is called Redemption. I want to close with just a really short excerpt from that that illustrates, in a, I think, a powerful way about what I've been trying to say today, through painful and beautiful transparency, the brokenness of his life is birthed to hope. I didn't want no white folks around me, but they was all around me. One of my doctors was white. He would come and sit with me every night at the hospital until I go to sleep every night. In that broken moment that that I was out loved by those people that I need to hate. If you don't forgive, you sort of have the pains of others as well as your own pain. I've come to the place now that I see humanity as broken equally. We need to try to turn 
this into a language of love. We need to turn it into beauty. Let's walk together, brother. Don't get worried. Let's walk together, brothers and sisters, and don't get worried. We can be healed, that we can forgive each other, that we could make a better world for our children. We wash in the wound that we have inflicted on our brothers and sisters. We are washing each other's wounds. I didn't want no white folks around me, but they was all around me. When I listen to that and those last words, we are washing each other's wounds. We are washing each other's wounds. I thought, oh, what, a, what an eloquent way to describe forgiveness. Um, if there's something in your heart, in your life, we got plenty in this world that needs to be forgiven, that's the word today. Forgive one another. Would you pray with me? God, I'm thankful for the way that you, um, that you work in our life, the way that you constantly trouble our hearts and urge us to be more like you. And I pray that in this hard work of forgiveness, that we might reflect you in this broken world. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.